Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. I'm Kyle Krieger, and I'm thrilled tonight to be joined uh, by Jose Wilson. Jose, how are you? I'm good. How are you, man? I'm doing excellent. I, I, I got to say, I feel bad for you. You know, I thought I had it bad uh, when I knew I had two weeks left of school, and you've got five weeks left, so you're definitely, uh, I'm definitely in a little better spot in, than you in that regard. I hear you. I mean, you start way before Labor Day, no? Uh, we started like a week before Labor Day, so so okay. it's 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 about the same. But I'm I'm here in Wisconsin, and you know we we had winter until about three weeks ago, so we didn't we didn't get rid of all our snow until about May. I'm still trying to think about what kind of, what spring looks like anymore. Um, <laughs> the, did you go so straight it, from winter to summer? Yeah, I mean, we kind of had this thing where we went from winter, and, like we just had a really big summer day, and then it just came right back down to winter. Like, oh, let's tease you for a little bit, and then <laughs> for like the next month, it's been kind of showers and all sorts of random weather. So, I mean, I feel you on that. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, with our podcast, what we're trying to do is just you know, be a platform for teachers to tell their stories, talk about their passions, and, and we hope that it'll ins- inspire other teachers. So to get it started, kick it off, could you kind of just tell us your backstory and how you got to become a teacher and, and where you're teaching at now? Uh, well, right now, um, I'm teaching in Washington Heights, New York City, um, and I've been doing so for the past 13 years. When uh, yeah, I came... I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I've been through public school, been through private school, half and half, pretty much. Um, Graduated with a degree in computer science from Syracuse University. And um, at the time, I didn't know what I would become. I thought I'd maybe become a computer scientist, a video game programmer. And then I found through all these different venues that that really wasn't for me. Um, Started getting involved with activism and through that activism, I found my calling within education, specifically teaching. Um, I had a little, uh, I had a bit of an arduous road there in order for me to get to teaching, but I ended up in the NYC Teaching Fellows, and I've been teaching ever since. So that's been the blessing thus far. What What is the NYC Teaching Fellows? The NYC Teaching Fellows is a program that's similar to like a TFA, but its emphasis is on career changers who actually want to stay in the classroom. Um, that's kind of the distinction there. So it's a program where you get about six to seven weeks of intensive training on pedagogy and practice, and then you're thrown to the, the classroom practically immediately once you get a job. I mean, these days it's a little different. You do about a half a year to a full year of immersive training with their, uh, with their prospective candidates before they actually get their own classroom. But uh, back then, that's the way it was. Awesome. And you said that was 13 years ago? You've been teaching 13 years now? I think so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I feel like I lose count every time I ask somebody or somebody asks me. <laughs> but, it's, yeah, 13 yeah. is fine. Yeah, the years all blend together. And And what content area do you teach in? I teach students math. I've been teaching... Seven and eighth grade math for a bunch of years. I had a year where I taught sixth grade, but generally it's all seven and eight. Nice, nice. All right, so to c- kind of continue the the questions, could you tell us about your fa- favorite teacher that you had growing up and why that person was your favorite teacher? Gosh, I mean, I was I was a nerd, so I had a lot of favorite teachers. <laughs> um, I, I guess. Well, I, I had. Uh, a high school teacher, and granted, her class didn't count for a grade, but um, she was the choir director, and when I started becoming involved with the choir, I just remember uh, Mrs. Catani being such an influential person in my life, um, as far as giving me um, the vote of confidence, um, and what you should know, too, is, you know, during, at the time, I was attending an all-boys Catholic school, um, and I didn't have, like, I had some academic confidence, but I really found good spots for me to demonstrate my talent 
in places like drama and choir. Um, and so Ms. Katani was able to bring that out of me in a really big way. And I'm blessed because she taught me how to use my voice and use it well. You know, we stay after school for long hours just practicing on how to get better with my voice. And um, even though I don't find myself as talented within the singing department as I was back then, I'm still very much using my voice in ways that hopefully matter to uh, the folks who I sing to regularly. Oh, awesome. Those are, that's a, that's a really great answer. And did you graduate from an all-boys high school? I graduated all-boys high school. So uh, I actually went to Nativity Mission School from 7th to 8th grade. So I graduated from a all-boys middle. And then uh, Xavier High School, which uh, I, Al Roker, of all folks, uh, actually graduated from, too. Um, wow. We, he graduated from there a, a few years before I did. But that's kind of the thing to fame anyway. So uh, we graduated from there. Right, right on. So what I'd love for you to do now is is just I'm going to give you a few phrases and I'd like you to just complete the phrase if that works for you. That's fine. Okay, so the first phrase is the hardest part of teaching is? Working with adults who don't have the same mission and vision as you. Wow. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Most of the people that I speak to uh, when it comes to education, and maybe that's also because of the way that my own network is set up, and I have a few folks in that network, is it's never really about the kids. The kids are going to be who they are, but if other adults aren't in line or at least have a general vibe that is similar to yours in terms of their understanding of how we educate kids, then it can be really hard to have conversations that matter. Um, it's akin to, um, and I, I tell this fairly frequently, let's say you were working at a bank and you know the customers are going to be who they are. Some of them are going to be rowdy, some of them are going to be snippy, some of them are be lovely and you want to see them every single day. And But that's their customers, right? And the customer generally is always right. Like that's the practice, yeah? Um, but if your coworkers are not the folks if they're not willing to work with you in that in that struggle like the ebbs and flows of the day then generally you feel you feel like the job is not a good job for you um and that's the difference i think with uh, so many of us is um we're trying to find spaces where other adults want to come together and really build something um and there are so few spaces where you know you have folks who are not just together in a school building but have a similar school of thought and i think that that's second element is probably what's missing with a lot of us who are in this work. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great point. So, all right, next phrase. The one thing I wish parents knew about teaching is? That those of us who care about their children really do worry 24-7 about them as well. Yeah. Do you feel like parents don't, do you think that the, why, why is it that they don't like really appreciate that or get that? Where's the disconnect there? I'd say that a lot of it is just straight up communication, right? Like actually being able to talk to human beings on the other side of the line. Um, and that goes both ways. So with the parents, you know, they have their nine to five or they're at home or they're wherever, right? But the school edifice is always what it is. It's like this, it's sometimes for a lot of parents, it feels like an impenetrable fortress with a lot of people who don't listen to them and their concerns. Um, on the other end, you have uh, educators who sometimes call parents just to be like, your kid's bad, your kid's bad, your kid's bad, instead of saying, let me send an inspirational message from a human being that um, this parent can connect to. And, you know, with, with all that, of course, are all the different complications about trying to be a human being in what's sometimes a dehumanizing system. Um, so I often find that the disconnect there is like, yeah, I mean, I know that this teacher cares and 
I don't, I can't necessarily have a conversation around how it is that they care. So there's a lot of parents who won't know, like, there are, there are weekends where I'm literally, like, thinking about how I'm going to build a better relationship with certain children, um, how I'm going to build a better relationship with a whole entire class, or um, how many hours it takes for me to grade maybe five sets of papers. I mean, that it's a lot. And people say, well, it's math. It's like, no, actually, you have a little bit more thinking to do in terms of um, what are your next steps in terms of your pedagogy and um, how we're going to use our relationships to really get kids to learn. Um, those are all elements that come into play there. And often I don't think parents get a chance to witness that art and then vice versa too, like what it takes for the kids just to get to your classroom. So I think that's a conversation we need to keep having so we can build a better relationship between parents and teachers. Right on. All right, so I definitely want to come back to what you said about a dehumanizing system, and I'm sure we will. But uh, the last kind of phrase I want you to to say and finish is, "What's the most rewarding part of teaching, or the most the most rewarding part of teaching is?" The most rewarding part of teaching is the collective victory made up of all the small victories we accumulate along the way. Yeah. That's that's such a good point. And I and I think too that's something I'm learning in my teaching practice is that, you know, you can't just bank on the big victories. You gotta really rack up those small victories. And that's just not a good practice for me as a teacher. It's a good practice for me as a person to really be like appreciating the small victories that I have. So appreciating the collective collective victories is awesome. So uh, yeah, I appreciate those answers. So to keep it rolling, um, what is your take on the state of education today in America? The easiest thing for me to say is that we are nowhere near where we want to be as far as an educational system. We are... Uh, <laughs> We have so many different issues going on at the same time and so many solutions that I don't think we're going to actually come together to find that solution until we have a very concerted effort towards being thoughtful about them. So um, people like to say, for instance, that there's like, uh, what is it, like China, like Finland, like any number of countries have it together. And then when you ask them, they'll say to you, well, you know, back in our history, we actually learned from what was happening in the United States. And it's like, how is that possible when we have all these issues that are happening right here? Um, obviously, some of that has to do with um, the way that our country was built. It was founded on, you know, um, stolen land, on, you know, racism, on uh, enslaved peoples, on continual subjugation of different folks, right? And... On top of that, it's like all the well-meaning folks who then stand by and don't try to do something to ameliorate the situation. So those are those elements, right? Um, but then secondly, it's also just coming together collectively and saying these are the things that we need to prioritize for our kids. And um, if it comes from the standpoint of saying, wow, like because you're this voter, because you're that voter, then we can't have a good school system, then that's not going to work because we'll just continue to perpetuate that cycle. But if we really sit down and we say, okay, these are the really the essential things that some of our kids need down to like the basics, like um, we should make sure that no kid uh, ever needs a pencil. Okay. We should make sure that all of our classrooms are air conditioned. Okay. Um, we should make sure that our kids aren't seeing like rats and roaches on a regular basis in their schools or that they have clean water, you know, these are essentials, right? And I think most human beings, if not all human beings can say, yeah, all of our kids deserve these things. And yet even then, you know, they, they, it gets politicized because of different elements that are happening way above us, but uh, within the power of our collective vote, within the power of our collective voices. Um, so, I, I mean, that's all that, right? But then even within that, even within all the strife, you still see, so many different people coming together and saying, we're still going to try to make things happen regardless. Um, the, especially the people who don't have as many resources. I think about places like, you know, in North Carolina, like in Arizona, where people are literally striking 
not because of whatever uh, payment they're getting, but because they just want better resources for their kids. They want to make sure they have safe spaces for their children. And you see all these different protesters who are, you know, hopefully coming together around issues of guns, right, in our schools and saying, we these are needless deaths. Not that every, any death is actually need uh, necessary, but looking at the, our school environment and saying, we just want kids to be able to learn and be able to find their own paths to success. And if we can con- create like these loving and caring environments, then we can do that well. And I think there are examples of that. The test scores aren't always going to show those too, right? And that's the other part that we need to really grapple with. But you walk into a school building and you say to yourself, are kids learning in this building? And does it feel right in this building? Like there are places where that's happening and they're not always getting recognized because of the different politics that are happening around us. Oh man, I really love what you said there about does it feel right in in the building? And, you know, I work at a school in Wisconsin that's, you know, four or five years old, um, brand new technology and everything. But, you know, back to your point with, you know, like the safety thing, like there are times where I don't, at this point, I don't feel safe. Like we took kids on a field trip, like, you know, a little bit away from our school because we have this really pretty waterfall and we just you know, end of the year field trip, just kind of get the kids outside. And I was like, gosh, I hope nothing goes down when we're out here, you know, in the woods. And I hadn't thought of it that way to to make sure, you know, that kids feel like the building is right for them. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. And how they probably can take risks in that building. Like, we already know through studies that if a child doesn't feel safe, then they're not going to be, they're not going to want to achieve. They're not going to want to do well. There's a less likelihood of that happening. And it's not because the kid can't learn. It's because we don't put them in environments that they're allowed where they feel that they should be learning. Right. So so when you say environment, are you talking both like the physical environment itself and the environment that the teacher or the school creates, kind of that school culture piece? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um the physical environment, yes, that's a really big deal. In Wisconsin, that's a really big deal with so many of our schools, yeah? Um, mm-hmm. But then, all, and as well as New York, obviously. And then you think about, well, the more intangible the thing gets, the more you want to find out what's, what that stuff is. That school culture piece, you're not going to find it in a rubric at times. You're not going to find it in, like, a set of numbers and yet um it is so critical when you have a a leader for example who says i'm going to make sure that every child i I know every child's name right i know um what they're about or where they live or um what they what their struggles are or what their good what their approaches are to the learning right and then how they're able to cultivate teacher morale so that it stays up because you never want the, the the adult who's in front of kids to feel like they're sad or they, you know, that they're frustrated um, for extended periods of time. I mean, that's going to happen. It's ebbs and flow, right? But if, if the teacher morale is low persistently, then that's a school culture piece. That's not going to show up in a rubric, that's, but that is going to show up in conversations that people have about each other. And unfortunately, it shows up in the things that we know about kids and how kids feel about themselves when they walk into that building. Yeah, and and this really leads nicely into into talking about your book. But, you know, you, you talk about the intangibles. So how do we, by definition, intangibles are things you, you really can't measure. So how how do we as teachers, like, really strive for those intangibles when, you know, like to tell you your book, we're testing so much. So... You know, how, how do we make that balance between the system that we're in, but we know the, the importance of the intangible piece? I, I think, when, and also, and thank you for that, people mistake whenever I say the intangibles with, well, we, sh- we don't need to be soft with children. Like, um, we want them to learn, yes. I mean, we want them to learn well and to strive as much as possible and then we, you know, nudge them and push them in ways that make them feel like they want to create some sort of change or at least 
push them in pathways that, you know, allow them to be their best selves academically, right? We want all that. At the same time, we also want the academics to come with positive experiences. So when teachers ask themselves, what is it about the school culture that allows things to happen, to allow learning to flourish? I mean, my num one of my number one questions is, um, what is your relationship like with students who are and are not in your classroom, right? Um, when you walk down the hallway, um, what, do you, what exactly do you feel as you see other classes or as you see the children around you who may or may not necessarily be in your class, right? Um, if your general sense is uh, they are not worthy of my presence, which unfortunately I see too much of, then that's a conversation that adult needs to have with themselves, uh, more so than the kids, right? Because the kids are going to be who they are. Um, as I like to say, the kids may not be able to read, but they can certainly read us. Um, so that's a one element. The second element for uh, teachers who are doing well, right, is um, do, do, can I sustain this positive energy for a sustainable amount of time? And I think that's such a critical element, right? There's going to be times when, you know, a class doesn't necessarily click with you. That's okay. There are going to be times when certain students really get on your nerves, and that's okay, too. There are going to be times when you get a really awesome class, and you're like, dang, I wish this class was as good as that class. Those are, that's a very natural human reaction. But at the end of the year, when you look at what's going on with you as a teacher, if you don't see yourself doing this profession uh, for an extended period around the time, because of the things that you're feeling in the school building, not because, you know, you may find different opportunities, you may find, like, another school that benefits your pedagogy. No, but because the school building itself is resisting you as a person, that's something that you need to ask yourself. And, you know, that's what I mean by school culture is you need to know what your intuition is telling you, and you need to be reflective about what that intuition is. Um, and, of course, it's hard. It's different for every person. But generally, your intuition is a pretty good measure for those intangibles. Like, it's not even like, does the principal like you? It's like, does the principal teach you professionally? Do they, do they respect your craft? Um, are they able to have conversations with you? Like, those are elements, right? When you go to the teacher team meeting, are you happy to collaborate with your colleagues? Do you actually want to work with them? Are you going to try something new? And if you're out of ideas, do you actually go out there and go reach and then come back and bring them in? Um, are we all learners in this process, or is it just that the learning happens with only kids? They're the only ones who get to learn. Everybody else is stagnant in where they are. And those are, again, all elements that we need to ask ourselves. They're not going to show up on rubrics, but they will definitely show up in the school culture. Absolutely, man. That's that's such a good point. So. To, to get over to your book, you know, your book is called This Is Not a Test. I'm just wondering, could you explain a little bit about what, you know, what the book is and, and why did you feel it was important to tell that story? This Is Not a Test is half memoir, half um, declaration to the world about those of us who actually stay in the profession and doing it in the time of education reform, standardized testing, and um, what I feel is this um, this weird vision about what education ought to be for so many of our children. When people read the title, they say, this is not a test. Oh, it's got to be a, a treatise against standardized testing. And uh, that was my push. I was like, oh, so this is the hook. Cool. Let me talk about the other elements while we talk about standardized testing, so you can understand what I mean by this isn't a test. It's also not about necessarily standardized testing itself. It's about the idea that teachers who stay are really committed people, and there's a love and a joy that ought to be um, embraced as we go through all these different political elements that are happening around us. And how do we keep becoming better teachers as a result? How do we stay in this work for as long as possible um, and do it as well as possible while we're staying here. We're not just staying here because we have no other options. We're staying here because we actually love the kids and we love our communities and we're really um, passionate about the work that we're doing. So that's hopefully what the book is about, but everybody seems to get a little something different every time they read it. So I appreciate it nonetheless. Yeah, you know, and, and I, in New York, 
what is what is the teacher retention like? Are, I mean, are there teacher shortages like there is kind of all over the country? Because from what I understand, there's teacher shortages everywhere. Yeah, there's teacher shortages everywhere. I think there are some spaces that are keeping their teachers, but generally teacher retention is a problem across the country. And um, I'd say even more so in spaces where, again, like you have uh, education reform really pounding down. So if you have things like uh, school under review, school and renewal, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to generally have situations where teachers don't necessarily want to be there anymore. We all in New York State have to get masters, for example, in order for us to become fully certified teachers. Um, that's, something, that's not something that gets out there like that, but it's a very real thing. So if we're out there trying to get a master's and yet our, our pay and the conditions and the spaces that we have to work in um, push up against the things that we're learning in our own schooling, then it's, it's going to be hard for us to keep teachers and not just the uh, quote-unquote attract talent, but really keep the folks who want to stay in these classrooms and keep them as long as possible. Um, I, I don't think that's something that people have really thought about over the last 16 years in a profound way, which is why we're at the state where we're at right now. It's like you can't do all these things that push teachers away and then say, where have all the teachers gone? <laughs> yeah. they, they, they go. Yeah, so. you know, when I, I grew up born and raised in Wisconsin, but my first job was in Houston because in 2008, you know, it was kind of that first real dip of all the jobs, and Houston was the only place I could get hired. Um, and I loved it down there. It was a great experience. I worked in one of the urban schools, but, you know, now I'm back in Wisconsin. I wanted to be closer to family, and it's just like there's there's a teacher shortage, there's a sub shortage. But, you know, on that teacher retention piece, what do you see, what is the importance of really retaining those successful teachers and helping them grow in their practice? I think there's an element of having teachers who know the history of a school stay at a school. Um, what too many of us know, for instance, is that administrators are often asked to go to different schools or generally they end up leaving to go to greener pastures or they get moved into central offices. And the people who are generally stay the longest are the educators who are there. So you know, there used to be a time, for instance, where you'd have teachers stay 20, 25 years, you'd have four or five principals at the helm, but the teachers kept the culture going. So that was, that's a critical element. Um, two, you actually, frankly, you know, do you have these spaces, again, where, like, they're mostly of color, for example, or they come from a poor community, but that teacher has been there for uh, 18, 20 years, they end up being pillars for that community, right? Like, they're the folks who people say, oh, I remember so-and-so, and now my child is going to go through their class too. Like that's a, that's a generational connectivity that I, I think doesn't, um, doesn't get talked about enough, right? Being able to say, oh, I had that really good teacher, and I know my child is also going to have that really good teacher when they grow up. Um, that's, that's a powerful thing. And, you know, we need to have those conversations because uh, schools – are generally hubs for communities. And I keep pushing that point out because it's so important, even with my school, it's like people remember certain teachers and they go, they go back and they say, oh, well, that teacher's gonna teach my child and hopefully uh, the, the child after may or may not be able to see that teacher, but I really felt great being in that school, being because I remember that teacher, I remember these experiences. Um, and it gets harder and harder to do that when you have high teacher turnover. It's like, oh, I had that one teacher, and now they're off, like, studying law, or they're, they're off, you know, being part of the government or whatever have you. And it, it, these stories get lost. Right, right. And I think that's such an important point. And, and I guess the question I want to ask you is, you know, obviously, when I moved to, you know, urban Houston from Wisconsin, I, I was an outsider. So... You know, because I know there are so many people like me because, you know, places like Houston, they recruit the Midwest hard to get teachers. So what advice would you give a teacher, you know, like me as the example, who's going to a new city, going to a new place where the culture is way different than they've grown up with? How how do they f be authentic and, and try to fit themselves into the culture at the same time? 
the fact that you're even asking yourself those questions puts you like miles above and ahead so many different folks, right? Uh, so many people come in and say, well, I'm, I was a good teacher here, so I know I'm just going to come in and start kicking butt over there. And then they just come crashing down because uh, the culture that was there says, wait a minute, you're not from here. You never connected with us. You never asked us what we wanted. So we're going to push back right up against you. Um, versus saying, let me immerse my, in myself within the culture. Get to know the place. So I think that's, that's, a, that's the number one thing you want to do is go get to know the space. Go ask the people and say, hey, like, you know, where do you recommend I should eat? Where do you recommend I should, you know, hang out? Where do you, where, you know, what do you know about this place, that place? And don't look it up on Yelp or don't look it up on, like, any other social media spot. Like, actually go there. Uh, take a walk. Take the walks that the kids do. Um, I remember being, um, I forget, somewhere down south, and I remember just saying, you know what, it'd be really cool if y'all actually, like, as a class, took a walk from where the projects are to where the school is, just to get a sense of where the where the kids are and where they're coming from. Um, and then secondly, of course, using that school connection to then say, hey, let me go ask the teachers what they know about the, the area. If it's a if it's a staff of generally new teachers, then they might that might not be as reliable. But usually, even the leader may have been there five six years and can tell you a few things, or um, the the students themselves can kind of tell you, hey, like this is the way we do things here, and this is the way you can contribute. Just being humble, and then eventually you add your own style and personality. Um, that generally is the most authentic way I've seen. It's just being able to say, hey, I need help. I am learning. Uh, it's such a critical element to all of this. Yeah, you know, and looking back at my time, you know, in Houston, because, like, my hometown literally has, like, 2,200 people. You know, when I moved to a city of 5 million, and that was the first time I was exposed to, like, what an inner city kid goes through. I didn't understand it. Like, I, I legitimately didn't understand that that was real that there were kids who were in the eighth grade taking care of four and five siblings. And it took me a long time to assimilate to that, to that reality. And looking back, I wish I would have spent more time, you know, going, going to the taco stands and, and doing all the things that they do in their community. I think it would have, it would have got me to understand that culture in a, a, a lot quicker and in a lot more authentic way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, so I was reading a little bit of your stuff, and 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 this is a term that I'm still trying to understand. So, um, the word is the word gentrification. You know, from your perspective, what does that mean, and and how is it affecting our schools and our kids? The word gentrification for me means um, the movement of people's. Um, uh, of any people who I guess would be considered native in a space, uh, they get supplanted by um, by economic policies to move them out of a neighborhood in favor of newer, more wealthier folk. So a um, good example where I come from, the Lower East Side, was generally a poor neighborhood. It started, um, well, it was, it was more famous as a Jewish neighborhood for a few decades. And then Puerto Ricans and black people also came in when um, Jewish folks moved across the, the bridge to Willensburg. Um, the gentrification element happened, though, right around the early 2000s, late 1990s, when uh, folks just said, wow, there's some cheap rent right over here. Let's go live over there. But then once they moved in and wealthier white folk came in, trust fund folks, they said, you know what, we need to set up shops that are more expensive to cater to our taste. And then soon enough, the high-rises started coming, the condominiums started coming, and some of the mom-and-pop shops started coming down. And, I, and that's what gentrification looks like for me. And what that often means is that so many schools that primarily serve uh, people who are you know, in poverty, who are of color, especially black and brown folk, but also Asian folk too, because it's happening in New York City's Chinatown as well, is um, our school's populations often change, and too often the mission of these schools has to change too. So there are places that used to just be about uh, poor 
uh, black and Latino children. And then once the uh, gentrification starts happening, uh, people start talking about magnet programs. They start talking about um, charter schools too, which, you know, that's another element as well. Like the folks who move in want to have a safe and nurturing school. But what that often means is that we want to make them more wealthy, more white and cater to the newer folks who are going to come in, perhaps provide more money to the um, parent teacher association, uh, perhaps provide more money to the schools instead of the folks who used to live there and to primarily serve them. But of course, they would have less resources as a result. And I think that's that's where you see the biggest shift when it comes to gentrification. And is that is that what you were? I, I read a little bit more about you too. You were talking about school choice. Is that kind of what you mean with magnets and charters by school choice? Am I making that connection correctly? Yeah, yeah. So it's not just a charter school thing. It's also a magnet thing. And magnets often get to say, "Oh, we're public school too," but you know, magnet is selective, so it doesn't necessarily serve every single body. Right, right. So, so they're they're the magnets and the charters get the kids who had traditionally been living in those neighborhoods or the the newer, richer kids go to the magnets and the charters? It, believe it or not, it, it's changing a lot. It depends on what, what what's being asked. So the original mission for so many charters, for example, was that they would primarily serve uh, the folks who didn't get served by the public school. So whether there be uh, uh, special education, English language learners, uh, kids in the lowest third poverty-wise, um, these were populations that were targeted. But it seems nowadays that there's a, there's folks trying to say, well, we want to set up a charter school so um, it's unregulated and it focuses specifically on the families we choose, um, which is another way of just saying, we want to create our own magnet without the regulation. Um, and it's fraught with a lot of different issues, unfortunately. But what we see, too, is that that trend is also happening. Uh, co it's coinciding with justification at the same time. So when you have a situation where a neighborhood is changing to make it wealthier and wealthier, too many times the public school that was there gets changed into a charter school. And then people say, well, we have a pretty school right here that we just built on the, on top of a school that used to serve black and brown children, and now it's going to go um, and become wealthier as a result. It's really weird right now. And so do those black and brown kids, are they losing out then when this happens? Or where, where are they being pushed? You know, where do they wind up in all of this? That's, that's, see, that's another great question. I think... Um, there, I mean, in New York City, for instance, it's getting harder and harder for uh, for a certain segment of people. And I don't want to just say it's black and brown either, because, again, there are Asian folks, Native American folks and poor white folks who also are getting um, pushed out of uh, Manhattan slowly but shortly. So places that used to be safe hubs like Chelsea and Harlem, um, there are a lot of spaces that are being shut down and then uh, Upper West Side even, believe it or not. A lot of different spaces that used to be primarily for blue-collar families, a lot of them are being renovated and changed into spaces where only, um, I guess, white-collar uh, families can move into. Uh, that says a lot about our direction as a city. Um, and I'm sure that's happening all over the country as well. Um, People are, even Brooklyn, Brooklyn used to be a place where people could move into, but it, the median income is actually a comparable pretty well to Manhattan. So people are getting pushed out of there too. Um, so too many spaces is either like, okay, we can go to the projects or we can move out completely. And a lot of people are choosing to move out of New York City as a result. Wow. All right. So, you know, how do we then change, you know, we're talking about teachers and, and this, how do we change the perception of teachers and their role in our society? Or, or maybe the question I'm trying to ask is, what do you believe the, the genuine role of teachers is in our society? Teachers are supposed to be the folks who transmit the cultural, social, and knowledge values of our country to our youth. 
Um, that's the general gist of what we do. That's why, for instance, we have things like a Common Core State Standard or we have any number of things that call themselves standards, right? Because we want to have teachers who can transmit these values, not just the academic stuff, but also the ways and means by which we approach um, citizenship in our country. Um, that's supposed to be the role. Um, what that means for different people often is determinant upon either what the state believes or what the community and um, the, the, the surrounding area believes. Um, so for instance, if you're coming into this, um, into school as somebody who is from the outside of the community and you have a more social justice orientation, and you're going into a space that is more conservative, it's gonna be kind of hard to transmit those values because it's different, right? It's a different sort of culture and vice versa. There are folks who are proudly conservative um, coming into a New York City space and all the teachers around them are looking at, at them kind of funny, like we're not really adjusting well to what you're trying to send to our students. Um, how we elevate the profession, I think it has to start with policy, right? Policy is, in my opinion, the, the biggest mover of things ever. So when you look at, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, people say, well, that that did some different things in terms of desegregation, sure. But it wasn't until people started enforcing what happened with Brown versus Board that the entire South said, oh, they mean business. So they started taking away funding. They made sure that children were able to go into those schools that they were no longer allowed to go into. And it took about 10 years or so. But uh, the South, believe it or not, has some of the best uh, spaces for desegregation in the country. Whereas uh, places like New York, um, Massachusetts, New Jersey have some of the highest segregation rates in the country. And that's no accident because New York never had to deal with the same laws that um, a place like Georgia had to deal with in terms of segregation um, or Mississippi, for that matter, or um, any number of places down south where it was enforced that you had to desegregate. New York was asked to just uh, try to do it on their own, but that never came to be. So now New York is number one in segregation in terms of our schools. Um I think policy has to be number one for teachers. Um, number two has to be just a cultural consciousness about what teachers do. It's not just the cute stuff that we do, right? It's not just that you know we're there sacrificing for our kids. It's also that we're professionals who constantly think about our, our craft, about getting better, um, and about doing this work to the best of our ability. You know, um, too many times people say, well, teachers don't take uh, the ownership of their profession. Yeah, well, I'm constantly having conversations about teaching, right? I'm having one right now. Like, right. and I'm thinking about it 24 seven and I'm grading papers all the time. Is that not professional development? Like, <laughs> right. like that's the critical consciousness. That's the intangibles, the culture, right? So one has to be a big policy. Two has to be the big culture, like how this country views teaching. And those go hand in hand because if you start saying, well, teachers ought to start getting paid 125K as a baseline, then that starts changing the narrative around what teachers uh, are actually doing. And that's the way our country works at this point, which is like, yeah, this person makes money. We ought to start listening. Right. You know, and, and the question that comes to my mind, and it's the challenge because we know that our government is set up that education is one of those powers that's left to the state. So the whole time you're talking, like, how do we get legislation when every state legislates legislates its own education that really serves everybody and serves the common good? And you know, I that that's just the question that I that comes to mind. Yeah, I, I think that's what other countries did so well that we did so poorly in uh, is the, this whole issue of states' rights. Um, we we need to find a way to just say, no, actually, we need to do this as a United States. Um, and really, the U.S. Department of Education is supposed to be um, part of that arm of saying, we need more equity in our schools. And has it been perfect in, in our country's history? No, but it's provided a nice lever for spaces where there is no representation. There is 
very little union to say, let me back you up. Um, th those are the spaces that needed the, the U.S. Department of Education to say, hey, guess what? You need to abide by these laws. So, yeah, having a federal approach to education, it's not going to solve every single problem, but it's going to be a bigger step forward than what we have currently. Right on. And and I love the I love the the term cultural consciousness because I, I do think that the, like you said, there's a lot the education has a lot of bad PR right now and teachers get a bad rap too. But you know, like you said, there's so many great teachers out there and, and there's so much of that going on that I think you know, I, I think it's maybe more of like you said, when the culture starts to change and the consciousness starts to rise, then they're gonna have to, you know, provide the legislation to say this is this is how much we value the teaching profession and our teachers. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. So I definitely want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to start to to wrap up the questions. So these are uh, these are not these don't have to be directly to education, but these are just some general questions we like to ask. So, what's the best advice you've ever been given, and who was that person who gave it to you? I was just recently asked that. Um, I'm going to do this in the spirit of um, Christopher Wallace's recent birthday. Um, stay far from timid. Only make moves when your heart's in it. And then the phrase, sky's the limit. I, I think about being bold, about being um, just straightforward and coming in with your truth. I think that's a critical element. And yes, Christopher Wallace being the notorious B.I.G. Um, rest in peace. <laughs> Oh man, I thought you know we've done almost sixty episodes, and that is our first Big reference, and I'm so pumped about it. I think that's fantastic. That's awesome. So let's go. All right, the best thing you've read in the last twelve months. Ooh. Okay. 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 Um. Sheesh. See, I I should have prepared for that question. Um. Best thing I've read in the last twelve months. Of course, here I go going on Instagram. I would say the best thing I've read in the last 12 months, um, besides whatever my six-year-old writes, um, came. That's a great answer. It's always a good answer because oh. he's, he's the greatest. Um, let me think. Let me think. Okay. So um, there's this book by... Uh, viewing out there electric arches is really dope it's a good uh book on poetry yes she's an educator um and a phd and she's starting to run things in chicago but that's a good book electric arches and um second book i would recommend is these schools belong to you and me by deborah meyer and emily gasoy like that book as far as having this conversation around democracy in schools that is the book to read right now for me. Um, and I think what's interesting about that book is that you have Deborah Meyer, this legend in education space, being very reflective about how she's talking about her legacy. It, like it's such a fascinating read. And of course, you know, having Emily Gasoy, the the firebrand educator out of Massachusetts, like that 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 was good to read. So I gave you two. That's Yay! Awesome. All right, so proudest accomplishment to date. Okay. Um, besides being a father to a six-year-old child, <laughs> um, my proudest accomplishment probably is the book. Um, you know, and I think about my own legacy, you know, being a child of, uh, you know, a first-generation graduate of a college, being the first to graduate from college from one of my sides anyway um of my family that was an awesome moment having been placed in an english language learner class like that was, that was a thing for me and that happened um i was labeled as such and then coming all the way to this point where i i'm an author like people weren't respecting teacher bloggers before and now they gotta respect us because there are books by those of us who started blogging like that's a big effing deal um <laughs> oh yeah for sure 100 so, percent. i mean you're you're paving the way for me to be a teacher podcaster so i gotta i gotta appreciate you for that thank you thank you and you know podcasters are running the world right now but you know i'm appreciative that i can lend any legacy 
elements for teachers, uh, especially current ones? Yeah. So, so on top of that, and you, you know, you kind of segue right into our last question, you know, it, you know, down the road when you're getting finished and what do you want your legacy to be? I mean, the, the easiest thing for me to say is that like, I would love to be the greatest teacher of all time, but, um, I, I currently live with my my wife, Luz, who is a much better educator than I. So that's already kind of taken care of, right? Um, I can't strive for that. But the one thing I could strive for is saying to the world, like, teachers are not silent about what's happening in our world. Like, we are not these statues of virtue. We are very complicated folks trying to do complicated work in complicated times. But we do so with whole heart, with whole integrity, and with the full love of students and community. Like that's what I would love to be able to say, and I, I strive for that vision every single day. Imperfectly, yes, um, but that's my legacy: is like making sure that very loudly and very proudly, being able to represent every single teacher that's about this life, about getting kids to learn well and love well. Oh man, I, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that like five more times to be able to write it down. That was, that was fantastic, man. So, if people want to connect with you, uh, read your blog, read your book, follow you, what are the best places for them to do that? Um, TheJoseVilson.com has all the links you could possibly imagine. But uh, those of you who know me know there's two very active spaces I'm in. One is Twitter at T-H-E-J-L-V, but also uh, my Instagram is T-H-E Jose Vilson. So uh, by all means, feel free to connect with me on either of those platforms. I'm super active on any... Actually, some people say I'm hyperactive on Twitter, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but feel free to reach out to me in those spaces. Email's cool, too, if you want to go more than 280 characters. But um, those are the three spaces I'm in. Right on. Perfect, man. So like I said, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and I've loved this conversation. I'm, and I'm going to have to I'm going to have to just put that out there that, you know, later on in the summer when things have cooled down, we'll have to uh, get on and, and continue the conversation, man. I really appreciate it. Of course. Can't wait. <laughs>